This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. Until recently, when women accused men of harassment or a sexual crime, it was too often considered a case of he says, she says. But with the advent of the Me Too movement, more credence is being given to what she says. That movement has moved this nasty little secret out of the shadows and into the sunlight, encouraging more women to come forward. But doing so is just the beginning of what can be a long, difficult, frustrating journey toward justice. And that is why WFAE is launching a new podcast, She Says. It follows one woman on that journey. She Says is hosted by our Sarah D'Elia, who talked to a lot of people who were part of that journey. And in advance of episode one of the She Says podcast series, Dropping, Sarah D'Elia joins us now on Charlotte Talks. Welcome back to the program. Thanks, Mike. Good work, by the way. I should mention that we asked a representative from CMPD to be on the program today, but they declined. What was the genesis for the, for the podcast to be created So our news director, Greg Collard, had been speaking to the woman, uh, Linda, who's predominantly featured in the podcast for about a year, going back and forth on Twitter. Just she was asking us about our coverage, what our plans were for covering things like backlogged rape kits at crime labs. Um, And slowly over time, she revealed that she herself was a sexual assault survivor and that this was an issue that was really important to her. And then one day after about a year of going back and forth, Greg brought this story and her up to the newsroom and said, you know, I've been speaking to this woman. Sounds like she has an interesting story. Who wants to kind of talk to her and find out more? And I remember at the time feeling like I had a lot on my plate and that that would be a really big undertaking. So I said something like, you know, whoever it is, I think it should be a, a female reporter because you're going to have to have a lot of intimate uh, conversations and go through a lot of nitty-gritty of what happened that day and develop a relationship with that woman. Mm -hmm. And so Greg said, well, how about you do it then? (laughs) So that's how I kind (laughs) of got put in touch with Linda. But it was was not intended initially to be a podcast, I take it. It was just going to be a story. Yeah, it's just going to be a story. And this is a series. It's not just a single podcast. How, right. how many how many podcasts in the series? So we're planning on eight episodes. Okay. Yeah, and, that's planned. And they run in, I'm sure they vary in length mm-hmm. in terms of time. But what? when did you decide that this is a podcast? This needs more airtime than just a single story or even a series of, of shorter mm-hmm. stories. When I spoke to her for the first time in person last June and I spent the entire day with her, like, the whole day with her and her family at their home, I left and I said, this is something bigger than just a story. This is a series because you can't just tell this woman's story in in four or five minutes like a normal feature. Um, And there were so many things that she was dealing with, too, from the trauma of the assault to her relationship with the police to having to really be an advocate for herself to get updates. I mean, it was a huge story. And I wanted to not just hear from her, which was obviously really important, but to hear from people that she's met along the way from the same nurses that did her her sexual assault exam. We didn't talk to that specific nurse that did her exam, but just to talk to some of those nurses that could give us an idea of the process. In, in the opening uh, of the podcast, or in the podcast, she says, you follow this victim of sexual assault. And I did not say alleged victim of sexual assault. And I don't believe you refer to her that way uh, in the podcast either. Why not? Um, because she was sexually assaulted. 
Yeah. How, how do we know that? So she uh, hate to be devil's advocate. Sure. No, that's that's completely fine and fair. She there's been a police report. We've mm-hmm. talked to the police about it. We've talked to her. Um, you know, we weren't able to talk to the detective that handled her case, but we were able to talk to uh, Lieutenant Melanie Peacock, who heads uh, the sexual assault unit at CMPD. And um, I mean, there. It, I don't want to give. Too much away, but... But they know that something happened. Yes. Okay, they have evidence to indicate that something happened. It's not just it not it's not just a she says he says thing. Correct. Okay, uh, and you call her Linda. That is not her real name. But I'm curious as to why we're not saying her real name. And yet she said, "Yes, do my story. Tell my story." Right. So there are parts. I mean, Linda is not a perfect person and she would not claim to be. And there are parts in her story where that night she had been drinking. Um, She has admitted full heartedly to both me and the police that she uh, was offered drugs that night and did use some drugs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, she she's a mother. She's a member of the community. She has uh, kids, friends, family. And there are things that she wouldn't want her first and last name to be on the radio. And as we will see as we continue this conversation, uh, those facts, although they play a role, are not the main story. Correct. At all in this podcast. Take your reporter hat off for just a moment and talk about what these conversations with Linda and others that you profile in this story and, and, the, and the story itself and how it winds its way through the system makes you feel as a woman? Hmm. Um, I mean, we've had some really hard conversations and it's a very interesting line to walk as a person and as a reporter of getting to know someone, earning their trust, but also having that kind of wall up that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not her therapist. I'm not her legal counsel or anything like that, but still developing a relationship with her in this way. There are a lot of hard conversations where, you know, as soon as the mic turned off and, and we said goodbye, I went home and decompressed and had to work out those things because it is really difficult to hear, one, about some physically really hard things to hear about her going through and then also hearing how she didn't feel heard. I mean, as a woman, I think that's a lot of things. That's something that, unfortunately, a lot of women can uh, relate to is not feeling heard. So, you know, as a woman, uh, I'm glad that I was able to tell her story. But as a person, I think like I hope that as a as people, people will be bothered by some of these things. This may not be a fair question because there's so many things about her story and her experience, which can be extrapolated out to the, to everybody who may go have to go through this. But what seemed to have the most impact on you as you learned about her story and as you talked to, to some of the people involved? Just how much she had to do a lot of her own advocacy work, like just how many times she had to follow up with CMPD to ask for an update. You know, if you listen to the first episode, um, I don't want to give too much away, but there are some clues as to who this person uh, was that assaulted her, who was a stranger to her. She did not know this man before the assault. So, you know, just how many... uh, how many clues she had to kind of advocate for the the police to look at. Um, and it's not that I think that the police were negligent. I just think that she had to keep raising her hand to say, like, hello, I'm still here. I'm not going anywhere. Wow. And I think that's a lot of thing. That's something that people will be surprised to hear about. 
So you um, gathered hours of, mm-hmm. we don't use tape anymore, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you gathered hours of, of tape of conversations with Linda, with detectives and uh, other police officers and, and other people, and, and far too much uh, for a news story, which is why this is a podcast. And the tape that you gathered is the basis of this podcast. So let's listen to, listen, uh, to Linda and how she describes the assault which started in the perpetrator's car. It didn't take her long to realize that she was in danger. I was in the passenger seat, he was in the driver's seat. He grabbed my inner thigh and started kind of pulling and trying to like touch me. And I was like stiff, frozen up and was like, no, 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 please, no, 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 no. I'm married, I have a husband, I've got kids. No, this is no. And that's when he pulled the box cutter out that he had in his car. And it was just one of those folded, like the box cutters that fold in half and you can flip it open. And he pulled that out and he said something along the lines of, I don't want to have to hurt you or don't make me hurt you, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So now this uh, it should be pointed out that she did not know this man. Right. Uh, the, a complete stranger to her, and yet she was in the car with him in the middle of the night. And this is one of the mistakes that she admits to making. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think if she could go back and do it again, she I mean, she kind of starts her night literally at this fork in the road and she had been drinking. She um, had a disagreement with her husband and she needed some air. And she has told me, you know, I could have turned left. I could have turned right. I knew one way would have kind of like looped back home. Uh, Another way I knew wasn't in a very good area of town. And, you know, I made that choice to go that way. This is a dark uh, journey, not only that part of the journey, but the journey through the system. And one of the things that you say in the first episode is you ask listeners to close their eyes and imagine themselves on a long, winding road with sharp turns, dead ends, and pitfalls. That, you say, is the best you've been able to come up with for what it's like to navigate the system if you're a sexual assault survivor. Why is this such a long road. It seems cut and dry. It happened. There's evidence. Let's get on with it. Well, I wish it was that easy. You know, she was sexually assaulted in 2015 and uh, is still searching for answers in a lot of ways. It's not just, I mean, first it's having the courage to come forward and file a police report. And so many people don't Don't. do that. So, you know, that's step one. And then it's, you know, Uh, being interviewed, uh, hopefully a couple of times from the police and making sure that they have all the details and everything. But to take a step back from that, so it's it's calling the police, police report. I mean, then there's the sexual assault exam. Um, That's an extremely invasive, emotionally and physically process. I mean, there are so many different swabs that they have to take to hopefully capture DNA. That's maybe going to link someone, a suspect, to to someone's uh, sexual assault kit. So there are so many steps. And then it's not just the police, it's not just the victim, but it's also that ties into uh, the backlog. Uh, that's the problem all over the country. It's not unique to Charlotte, but there is a backlog of um, sexual assault kits that are just but, waiting but aren't to there, be t- aren't tested. There a backlog of cases of, uh, of robbery and, and uh, homicide, etc.? Is it similar to that? Is it worse than that? Is it the same? My is understanding the... is that it's worse than that. Wow. That's my understanding. Okay. Uh, there are so many different swabs and samples that need to be taken with the sexual assault. And I know with um, homicides, too, that there are a lot of swabs and uh, different pieces of DNA that are collected as well. But, you know, 
part of the reason that uh, a backlog gets formed is one, resources and funding, but also at least the way that we do it is it's a priority basis. So, you know, there's not necessarily like your, you know, your back, your kit came into the lab at this point, so you're going to get processed first. Mm-hmm. If there's somebody who might be a victim of a serial rapist and they think that there's somebody out there that needs to be captured right away because there's there's evidence showing that there's person raping multiple people, you know, that kit might get pushed to the front of the line. There's so many different dynamics at play here. And one of them is the the actions of police in some cases. And in her case in particular, the event occurs, she does come forward. She's brave enough to call 911 and, and inform the police. Her account of what happens next, though, is kind of frustrating. She's interviewed by a CMPD detective who frequently urges her to be completely honest is that normal when you report a crime for the detectives? And I'll be honest now, be completely honest about this. Is that sure. normal? That's what they do? Um, so, uh, yes. And just because something's normal doesn't necessarily mean it's something that you should do. Of course, like, I don't think it's out of line to say, like, please be as comfortable with me as possible. Please tell me everything, even if it's really hard, because, you know, uh, it's it could help us further down the road. You need to have a an amazingly comfortable and trusting relationship between the victim and the detective. But then there are certain things that I think you just you probably shouldn't say Mm. that because it it disrupts the trust between the victim and the detective. Was this a female detective saying be completely honest? It it was. And and one of the things that the detective says is something along the lines of, you know, if you're not telling me the truth, you could be arrested. Right. We'll, we'll, We'll talk about that when we come back. And a reminder that we did ask people from CMPD to come on and uh, be with us for this program today, but they were unable to make anybody available to us. We're talking to Sarah D'Elia, uh, WFA News, uh, and a reporter for She Says, a new podcast that drops this week momentarily, as a matter <laughs> of fact. We'll continue our conversation in a moment at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Hey, Charlotte Talks fans. Have you ever wondered about the tree canopies in Charlotte or what sparked the rivalry between Charlotte and Raleigh? Vote for the question you'd like WFAE to answer in the next episode of the FAQ City podcast. Go to WFAE.org slash FAQ City. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded 90.7 WFAE and 90.3 WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. Sarah D'Elia is with us from WFAE News. She is the host and the reporter behind She Says, which is a new podcast which launches today at WFAE.org, which follows one woman who we're going to call Linda through a long uh, journey toward justice after being sexually assaulted. Uh, I don't think that journey has ended yet, but we have taken a long time, or Sarah has taken a long time, to meet with the players in all of this and talk about the process. We asked representatives of the Charlotte Police Department to be on with us today, but they declined. So she was interviewed by police, as we said in the last segment, who told her to be completely honest. This went a step further, as you just alluded to. Here's what Linda told you the detective said next. You realize that you could be arrested. And I I said, what for? And she said, you know, uh, I don't know the terminology, but it was basically along lines about false allegations, like filing a, I guess, false police report. I don't know, or even worse. Like she was questioning me more so than asking questions about the man that did this to me. Again, is this standard operating procedure or does in any crime or is this just the case in uh, the case of uh, sexual assault or just the case 
in this case. I've spoken to not just Linda, but other sexual assault survivors. And in the different conversations I've had, it's not um, it's not uncommon for police to ask, like, are you being honest? Is this, you know, are you sure that it happened this way? I mean, there there are a lot of interesting questions that police ask. Why? Is it because it's a male-centric profession? Is it because traditionally we have not believed the woman? Is it because uh, it, it is up until a point, a he says, she says situation, and we want to make sure that we don't falsely accuse somebody or take somebody's word that is being that they're lying. Is that why? I think part of it is that, from my understanding, talking to a lot of different detectives and law enforcement officers that I've spoken to, I mean, they are searching for the facts right. and they are trying to get to the bottom of it. And I certainly can appreciate that. Um, but what I think um, it comes down to is training and being able to empathetically ask people these questions. And so being able to do your due diligence, find the facts, but also um, not traumatizing someone while you're interviewing them. And you may not know the answer to this question, so this may not be a fair question. Has this changed at all in the light of the Me Too movement? I don't know. Okay. Uh, Linda goes on to talk about the physical signs of her abuse. She had physical signs. You could see them on her arms, etc. Uh, and she wonders about the need for the detective to bring up these clearly visible signs during the police interview. People had asked me if I'd been in a car accident. So I was black and blue all over my neck. I was hoarse because I couldn't talk. I had a, a bruise in the shape of a handprint on the inner left thigh. So I got very upset, like not angry with her, but just like hurt that she was asking me these questions like this. I, and I pointed from like my head to my toes and I said, does this look like consent to you? I was just shocked. I thought, you know, I thought these people, I've, would, would be trained on this. The first thing you do, and now I especially know, is you believe someone when they tell you this. Should we? I think so. I think, uh, and you know, for what it's worth too, I mean, we have done our due diligence with this reporting. I've looked at her medical records from that night. I've looked at you know, there, there are comments from the medic and, um, and the, the doctors and people that have seen her. And, and there are there's evidence to, to show that she did have uh, bruising on, on her neck and, and some other trauma. So, you know, while we are this is she says and we are listening to what Linda is saying, we are also fact checking and uh, looking for the evidence ourselves as we've been reporting. But the detectives that I've spoken to, some in Charlotte, some in other places in the country, I mean, the rule of thumb is you believe everyone until there's a really good reason not to believe someone. But it sounds to me like, at least the way she tells her story, she really has to do a lot of work to plead her case just in the early stages of investigation. I mean, you have to, it, it sounds, I, don't, I can't imagine that if I picked up the phone and called police because my house had been burglarized, I would have to prove that my computer was gone. Maybe I never owned one, but wouldn't they just take my word for it? That's another comparison some detectives <laughs> have met that we, you know, we, uh, one detective that I've spoken to has said, you know, if somebody leaves their garage door open and their car gets stolen, well, we don't like chastise that person necessarily and, and really like victim blame them in that case. Mm -hmm. But can the same be said for sexual assault? I'm not sure. 
So let's bring some other folks into this conversation who deal with what we've been talking about almost all the time. Crystal Emmerich is founder and executive director of Brave Step. That's a nonprofit that supports people impacted by sexual abuse. She is herself a survivor and created Brave Step to help other survivors. She's in our studio. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And with us by phone is Carly Mee, an attorney and executive director of Serve Justice. That's a nonprofit that provides legal representation to survivors of sexual violence in civil campus and criminal systems. And again, I believe she is also a victim or a survivor of sexual assault. Thank you, Carly, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the two of you have been listening very patiently to uh, Sarah and to Linda's story here, as told to Sarah on WFAE's podcast, She Says. Uh, in her, is her experience similar to what you see around the country or around the state or, or outside of CMPD jurisdiction? And I'll, I'll start with you, Crystal. A lot of the survivors we see... There's a mixed um, portion who have never been uh, through the system. We'll just kind of characterize it that way. And then we've had a few that have. And it is not, it's not a perfect process. There's, there's nothing about that journey of going through the system or not going through the system that is healing or nurturing or truly very helpful in uh, getting through the, the process of the trauma. Were anything was was there anything about Linda's story that have reverberations to you because of your own experience? So I have two two pieces of my story. I was sexually abused as a child from three to about thirteen years of age, Hmm. and then in college I was raped uh, by a a friend, uh, my roommate's uh, friend, and and specifically to to my rape. I had absolutely no inclination of reporting it afterwards. I remember it was a student athlete that that did it. And I remember the next day walking on campus with so much shame and guilt that that going to police didn't even cross my mind. But I think the sense of desperation that I hear in her voice, I can very much relate to that. Carly, same questions. Is uh, is Linda's experience, as we hear in this podcast, substantially different or pretty much the same as stories you hear everywhere? It's very similar. Um, A lot of my clients um, have to constantly be pushing um, for a response from police and really advocating for themselves. They don't hear back. Um, They're kind of just left in the dark about what's going on, which is incredibly stressful for them. Mm -hmm. Any reverberations, once again, to your own experience? You know, I... um, I was raped during within the first couple of weeks of my freshman year of college by a fellow student. And um, immediately after someone told me I was stupid for letting him into my room. So the victim blaming language that followed just made it. So I never considered this was something I could even go to the police about. There wasn't enough education of what consent means and, um, and what our options were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perhaps it's because uh, sexual assault is so intimate and so traumatic that you you look at police reaction to this just in the normal course of doing their job so they can collect information in an accurate manner that will hold up in a court of law. That can seem to the average person as mean or abusive when in fact it is not. It's necessary because if we want to get the facts to stick in court, we got to get them right. But has this changed any? I'm going to ask the same question I asked of Sarah a moment ago. Has this changed any because of the Me Too movement? Carly. You know, I 
I would disagree, though, that they have to conduct it in that manner. There's a way to conduct an investigation in a trauma-informed manner. Um, and actually, it's more likely to be more successful at gathering evidence. For example, um, studies have shown that survivors are much more likely to have stronger memories of what occurred if they actually sleep on it rather than doing an interview immediately after the fact. So we need to have police who know how to conduct this in a trauma-informed manner. And as for how the Me Too movement has changed things, I think the Me Too movement so far has been really focused on the employment context and hasn't really expanded yet mm. to push for changes in the criminal system. Um, it's definitely something I'd like to see, but I don't think we've gotten there yet. So getting back to Linda's story, Sarah, she's very honest and open with you in, in the course of this podcast uh, about making some very bad decisions. Uh, she went out drinking with friends that night. She came home. She was a little tipsy, got into a disagreement with her husband, decided she needed to go for a walk to cool off, did walk toward an area that she admits was kind of sketchy and mm -hmm. she knew it wasn't particularly safe. A young man approaches her, concerned about her condition, and I think genuinely wants to help her or make sure that she's okay. And uh, at some point, the topic of drugs comes up. He arranges for her to meet this other man who can connect her with drugs. I think uh, I forgot the drug that she specifically mentioned in, in this, but I think crack cocaine mm -hmm. was mentioned. Uh, so she gets in a car with this second individual who drives her out to some deserted area. And that is where the assault begins. She, she made these very bad decisions. Do those decisions in any way impact how the police view what happened to her? Um, I've asked the police that question, and they say no. Um, that all, they treat all sexual assault uh, cases the same, whether that's someone that, uh, whether the, the suspect is someone you know, someone you don't know, and a, a stranger. Um, so they have said that, no, it doesn't. Um, but there are things that make it, you know, harder to work a case, too, especially when it is a stranger, because, uh, I mean, DNA is so important in those stranger cases. And uh, you're waiting on that DNA to come back from the lab. And when you have backlogged crime labs, well, that's how we get to her, three years later, she's still, you know, has questions. I mean, the traditional, the old way of looking at this in many cases by law enforcement and just people in society was, oh, well, she asked for it. Uh, so uh, there may be little shards of that remaining in the backs of people's minds. So Carly, as, a, as an attorney, uh, even if this isn't used against her, even if stop gaps have been put in to understand, we have greater understanding that that has no, no impact on whether it happened or it didn't happen. Uh, does it slow things down? Could it slow down the cooperation of investigators? I think it could bias them in terms of making them think it's a harder case to try and, and make them doubt whether it's worth it. But obviously, you know, I wouldn't characterize what she made as sort of bad decisions because, you know, people make mistakes and that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that that doesn't have any bearing on whether someone has uh, right to have sex right. with them. And and she admits to seeking, and I, I don't know whether she took the drugs or not, but she admits to seeking drugs, and there were, there were illegal drugs, which is a crime in itself. So does that impact the investigation or how police might view this person who, in the course of being raped, committed a crime? I think from... 
because she has been so honest about everything, I mean, I feel like that makes her, and this is just my perspective, it makes her a reliable witness. Like maybe if she had lied about drugs and then it came back later, like, well, you had drugs in your system. What else did you lie about? You know, that could have been a problem. But from the very beginning, she's very honest with the police saying, look, I did these things in retrospect, wish I hadn't, but this is the truth. This is the way it is. I'm being honest with you here. You know, I mean, what more can you ask of a victim? You run this organization, uh, Crystal, called Brave Step. Uh, It would seem to me it's brave just to have to do this, to have to come forward about this. But when you add that component Mm -hmm. to it and some of the other components in Linda's own story, it would seem to be even more brave. Are there other women that you have dealt with? Who have similar, who find themselves in similar situations with similar stories to tell, and does it make it that much harder for them to come forward? I, I think it does. And, and to your point earlier, just speaking the words that I was sexually abused or sexually assaulted is a brave step in itself. It is the hardest revelation to Ex- explain why for people who may not under, under, may not understand. Well, personally, and and from what I've seen, there is so much shame and guilt that you carry for. Even though logically as an adult, we know that we were not responsible for being abused or assaulted. That, that's very understandable as an adult. But if it happened as a child or if you were drinking or had drugs, um, it, there's this, this sense of blame that you almost just take on instantly. And there's a lot of mind games that a lot of perpetrators will play with you so that you you do not feel armed. You do not feel prepared to go to anyone, much less the police, to, to tell your story. But we do hear a lot of stories that survivors, perhaps they were out partying with friends and they did have too much alcohol in their system. They feel like the assault was their fault because they should not have been doing that. Or And in Linda's story, it's not just a sexual assault. I mean, she was threatened with a box cutter mm-hmm. and she was smart enough brave enough, had the presence of mind enough to talk him down. Uh, that seems to me to, to be even braver than coming forward to the police. If you can do that, you can do anything. She has uh, a thought in her head before the assault happens when he's trying to get on top of her. Um, she has this thought of like, oh, I have HIV. She doesn't have HIV, but she that's what she says she tells him. And that kind of was able to, I mean, the assault still happens, but, you know, in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and after the assault is done, she is able to, she says that he actually started to cry and had a comment along the lines of, why do I always do this? And from there, she, instead of yelling, screaming, crying at him, her account is that she said, you know, we all do bad things. Um Let's let's just talk about getting me home. Let's just talk about getting me to an area where I know I'll get out. But my you know, it's after midnight. My my family's wondering where I am. And I just want to get back to them. And he tells her, you're a good person. Yep. I think it's interesting, though, because survivors have a fight or flight response. And it sounds like she was somehow presence enough to have the, the that was her means of fighting. But so many survivors go into a flight in, in the sense that they dissociate or they just endure because the sooner they can endure, the sooner this will be over with. And that's what I did when I was raped. I just grin and bear it. <laughs> so this, this assault took place in June of 2015. Mm-hmm. You've been talking to Linda for how many months? Um about 12 months. Yeah. So I've been with her a third of the journey. And so she's told you about some of her journey and you've experienced in real time 
some of her journey. And when we come back, I'd like to talk about uh, that journey with you because this is part of the part of the situation that makes this so difficult, particularly if you are a survivor of this, because this should be easy. This should be the easy part. And it turns out this may be the more difficult part to hear your story being told and to hear Linda's story being told. And a reminder that we did ask people from CMPD to come on and uh, be with us for this program today, but they were unable to make anybody available to us. We're talking about uh, Sarah Dalia's podcast, She Says, which is available at our website and which uh, drops today, it starts today, on uh, Charlotte Talks here on WFAE. We're coming right back. It's Charlotte Talks on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and 90.3 WFHE. I'm Mike Collins. Sarah Dalia is with us from WFAE News. She is the host and the reporter behind She Says, which is a new podcast which launches today at our website, WFAE.org, and other places where you get podcasts. Also with us, along with Sarah D'Elia, is Crystal Emmerich, founder and executive director of Brave Step, and Carly Mee, attorney and executive director of Serve Justice. I should mention that we asked a representative from CMPD to be on the program today, but they declined. Let's talk about the process that people who have been sexually assaulted, have to go through with the police beyond the first interview where you're told to, to tell the truth. Uh, what was your impression as you, as you followed Linda through this arduous, very long process in which more questions are raised than answers? Uh, you have to be a really good note taker. Uh, you have to keep a lot of records. And uh, that's what Linda, I think, did a really good job of doing because there are um, large gaps of time between correspondence with CMPD and her. Because, you know, I mean, and I get that to some degree, if there's no update, you're not necessarily reaching out to that victim. If you're a detective who is overwhelmed by, uh, you know, a, a lot of cases, you it's not just Linda that this detective was working with, mm-hmm. to be fair. But really, I was just taken aback by how much she had to stay on top and just ask questions. Carly made that point, too, is just, you know, you need to um, ask, like, where is my case? What's going on with my sexual assault kit? Has it been processed? Because sometimes it it felt like from her experience, if she wasn't asking those questions, she wasn't going to get those answers. You you deal, Carly, with uh, criminal, civil and campus cases of sexual assault. Is it different in each of those arenas? Is it different outside of CMPD, uh, maybe other parts of the state? Or is is there a a, a thread of commonality running through all this? There's definitely a thread of commonality. I've I've noticed that survivors really have to push to follow up. Um, They often feel like they're just sort of forgotten. And that's why it's so useful to have an advocate or an attorney because um, that person holds a little more weight and can, you know, push the police or the campus administrators to move forward. Um, whereas I think it's really easy to just dismiss the survivor and make them keep waiting. When you talk to women at uh, Brave Step, uh, Crystal, and, and you, I guess you, encu- you tell them to go forward. Is that part of what you do? You encourage them, you give them the strength to go forward and, mm-hmm. and tell the police? We're more focused on trying to get them healing. Uh, okay. be- because, and I love that both Sarah and Carly point this out, that you do need an advocate because as a survivor, you're going through so many overwhelming emotions and confusion. And to think clearly and to advocate for yourself in that state of mind is really, really difficult. How do you help them through that? Because it's as we're going to find out as we talk about this process, it can be maddening. Yes. And and we've heard stories and tales of that. We really advocate for trauma-informed counseling programs, and we offer that 
but really pairing a survivor with someone that's trained and empathetically inclined to treat survivors of sexual abuse, that is really critical uh, on, to be able to take on this journey of, of, of combating and advocating for yourself. You say, Sarah, that, 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 that victims who are going through the system or survivors who are going through the system, and that's probably the better word to mm-hmm. use, uh, uh, want to be heard. And that part of that is understanding the process and how it works. Are they not told by the police, here's what's going to happen. Here are the steps we're going to take from this moment toward the resolution of your case. They're not told how it works? I think it just depends on the detective. I've spoken to some uh, sexual assault survivors that felt like their detective laid that out very clearly to them. And then others who just felt like, no, Mm. unless I called for those updates, I wasn't getting those updates. And so I think it really just depends on the training that detective has had, their level of empathy, and and also like their caseloads, what else they have on, on their plate. But yeah, I mean, it is sometimes these situations, at least in Linda's case, where she really had no idea of the process and had to ask multiple times for clarification. And you call this process, Carly, an enormous burden for victims. You say it's complicated and very discouraging. You say it makes victims wonder why they came forward in the first place. After all these years, why is this still the case? I think that we haven't come far enough in terms of how to conduct trauma-informed investigations and having trainings for police because, you know, at this time, we really, we have such a low rate of prosecution. And I think the reason for that, in, in cases of sexual violence, I think the reason for that is that there's not a sense of how to conduct these investigations in the best way. Um, The whole nature of the sexual violence crime is that there's not going to be someone present because otherwise it wouldn't have happened. So there's no witnesses and sometimes um, there's delayed reporting. So maybe there's no forensic evidence and it really relies a lot on credibility assessments. And I think that that discourages prosecutors from, from bringing charges. Hmm. And you say that the system is not really built for victims and that, in fact, it can do damage to the individual. If it's not for victims, then who is it built for and what kind of damage are you talking about? I think it's, you know, I'm not sure who it's built for because it, it's it's really not, maybe it's built for prosecutors who um, are concerned about bringing forward uh, cases and losing. And I think there's, you know, pressure on prosecutors to have a high rate of success. And in sexual violence cases, they're tough. It's, it's tough to achieve a guilty verdict. So often they don't try. Um, but it is such, it's just so difficult for survivors because it's, it's re-victimizing the way that they're often treated by police officers. And we see it in this case on the podcast is that they're questioned, they're shamed, they're made to doubt themselves, and it's almost just as bad as the rape itself because they're they're traumatized all over again. We, you know, we've done a lot of uh, programs on this program about uh, this incident of sexual assault on college campuses, and we've heard many times that one of the things that discourages uh, the survivors from coming forward is that they think that the college will not back them up, and in most cases, that is true, or at least it has been until the recent past when some colleges, I think, took a fresh look at this, we were led to believe that that's probably not the case off campus. But what I'm hearing you say, Carly, and what you're saying, Crystal, and what you're learning from this podcast, Sarah, is that maybe this is the case. Is that is that accurate? 
I mean, the statistics say 60% never report. And I think that number is arguably higher that never report. And I think there's a lot of reasons that go into that. Uh, Not only the self-inflicted reasons, but to everyone's point that the system doesn't create a nurturing place to be able to do this. And just even beyond the CMPD or or local police, uh, having to sit in a courtroom and and tell every single detail, Mike, of what happened to you while your perpetrator is sitting in front of you, that alone is is damaging twice over. Um, I've heard several stories of survivors, some that are very close to me, that they said if they had known what they were going to go go through both emotionally and and through the system, they would have never done it. And I think that is a telling sign of why. But isn't the anger that you would, obviously, any human being would go through uh, as they sit on the stand and face their, uh, uh, their, what's the word? Perpetrator. Thank you, perpetrator. Wouldn't that anger be cathartic? I don't know. I, okay. I mean, I know that but just my own personal, I, I, my, I don't have a lot of anger to the person who did what he did, either of them that did what they did to me. I think I've moved beyond that um, because it's not at the end of the day it's really not about them it's about you and trying to get to a place that you can move on with life okay. because sexual abuse and sexual assault is like it's the elephant in the room and it will follow you till you to until your grave unless you deal with the elephant you, 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 do you want to jump in here sir I did just uh, some survivors that I've spoken to they've said you know that, that that is a decision that they've had to make whether they wanted to go forward or not because they're like well do I want my life to be defined by this do I want to be in the wrapped up in the court system for years and you know we were talking uh, earlier just about you know court dates get pushed back um, and then you know you're, you're getting ready for one court date and then it gets pushed back to five months and that anxiety and, and that um, that buildup is something that people really have to weigh whether they want to, to go forward or not. So one of the things you were talking about a second ago, Crystal, was the low prosecution rate of sexual assault. And, and you go on to talk in one of the things I read about you, about these types of crimes, they don't have the same types of evidence as other crimes may have. But I'm just curious as to why not. What about rape kits? I think that, first of all, a lot of times the when it comes to rape kits, um, there's a delay in reporting. And so it takes and it takes survivors time to process what happened. They may not go get a rape kit immediately. And so then some key evidence is lost. Hmm. Um, and on top of that, often rape kits, because of the way that rape often occurs, there may not be, you know, bruising all over their body. Um, it could be, for example, like in this case, someone holding a box cutter up. And so maybe there's no um, physical damage, but it, there was still force. Right. And so um, that's why it's so important to rely on credibility assessments because there isn't going to be that type of evidence in every case. And we can't just rely on that and because there, then we wouldn't, we wouldn't have any guilty verdict. So Sarah says that at least in Mecklenburg County and in Charlotte, there really isn't a bad guy in all of this. No one is at fault. It's just the system. Is, is that the problem, where there is a problem in most areas of the country, that the system just needs to be fixed? It's not attuned to what needs to happen. I, I tend to think there's a couple of problems. I do think the system is one of them. I think education is another, um, continuing to educate people, women and men, because there's sexual assault and sexual abuse for men as well, um, that it's okay to come forward. Here are your options when you do. Here's options for healing. Um, but I also think that having a, a national uh, level of, of empathy to this issue and a recognition that this is real, that one in four women are sexually abused by the age of 18. Every single one of us knows a woman 
at least one out right. of four. And won't that be the impact of this Me Too movement with so many women coming forward and so many men being pointed out, very high-profile people on both sides of that equation? Isn't that the impact that this is going to have or has had already? I, I, you know, I'm, I'm torn. I have mixed emotions about Me Too, and I think Carly alluded to it. It is, at this point, in, in what we're seeing with sexual assault and sexual abuse, I think Me Too is still very surface level. And I don't think it's got to the point of really talking about the, the complexity of this issue and the fact that healing is important, that it is men and women that are sexually assaulted, there's just a lot of really big pieces of that conversation we're missing. Yeah, I was asked recently if I was I did the podcast because of the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's just not even possible because her story, I mean, one, I started speaking to her before Me Too, and her story starts in 2015. Um, so while it is great that there is all this attention and, and national attention to it, it's like this has been an issue and this has been a problem for yeah. so long. Let me also follow up to something I just said that, that you said that this is not about uh, uh, no one's at fault. There's no bad guy here. And you say that uh, CMPD is not this corrupt entity. But you do add that best practices uh, could be put into place and improved upon. Is the department working on that? They say that they're always working on improving their their policies and their practices. And, you know, and while I don't think that, you know, corrupt is a, a big word, I don't know that I, I in my reporting, I haven't experienced that with Linda's case. Do I think that there were some things that probably should have been done better? Absolutely. Is part of the problem that the caseloads are so high yes. for, for police, not just for this crime, but for all crimes? Absolutely, because you you have a certain amount of cases, and then you're picking up these cases as you go along, mm-hmm. and you hold on to cases uh, for a really long time unless they're they're closed. And when they're eventually closed, you know, I mean, that could be years. And, and CMPD Chief Kirkputney has said for years now that we are under police, that the city has grown so fast that we don't have enough police officers to deal with the growth of population. And I think a lot of people thought when they heard that, what we need is more beat patrol officers. What you're saying is we need everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we need help in the detective department to, to spread the caseload around. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of retired detectives that come back and help CMPD with cold cases. And I believe right now there are six um, sexual assault um, detectives that are working on the adult cases. I believe that number is correct. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, but, you know, six with, I mean, that's just, it's not enough. And they no. know that it's not enough. Right. And a reminder that we did ask people from CMPD to come on and uh, be with us for this program today, but they were unable to make anybody available to us. Uh, All over the country, we hear instances of these rape kits that the police take uh, take when a victim comes forward sitting on a shelf. uh, And they they are never uh, dealt with ever again. They just sit on shelves in police departments across the country. Have you found that to be true, uh, uh, Carly? how, How prevalent is this? It's it's an issue in every single state. Um, there's a massive rape kit backlog. And why um, is it negligence? Is it just attitude, or is it because we're understaffed? I think it's a lack of resources. Um, and then the major problem is that you're missing out on um, convicting repeat offenders. So you could potentially stop these perpetrators from going on and raping other individuals. So it's really concerning that we are that we're not processing these rape kits because it could make a huge difference in others' lives. Mm. Do you think, as somebody who deals with this as an attorney, that a a woman hearing these stories of how difficult the process is might prevent them from coming forward in the the event of their being sexually assaulted? 
I think so. Um, but I think there's a general awareness. You know, I hear from my clients at the campus level, most of them don't report to police because there's just a general awareness that it's very difficult and it's just not worth it to them. So we have the cost greatly outweighs the benefit. We have a minute left. What do you hope listeners will take away from this series of podcasts, she says? I hope that, I mean, if you have not walked down this path yourself or you have a close family member or friend that has, you have no idea that this path is even out there. So I hope that people can better understand the process, the system of of what is out there and hopefully have some ideas about what needs to change. Linda's case has not yet been resolved. Is that correct? Her perpetrator has not been brought to justice, but she knows who it is. She believes she knows who she it is. She believes she knows who it is. So will this continue until her case is resolved, or will it end after eight episodes? I plan on following her her case till the very end. Sarah D'Elia is the uh, host and reporter for She Says, a new podcast that you can get at uh, iTunes or WFAE.org or wherever iTunes or wherever podcasts are given away free. Uh, Crystal Emmerich, uh, founder and executive director of Brave Step, and Carly Mee, an attorney and executive director of Serve Justice. Thank you all for the hour. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.